Hello, and welcome to episode number two of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to take a look at some early piano quartets Beethoven composed in 1785 at the age of 15. The piano quartet, traditionally consisting of piano, violin, viola, and cello, was not as familiar as a chamber music genre in the late 18th century as the more prestigious string quartet, or even the piano trio, piano with violin and cello, or string trio, usually violin, viola, and cello. But Beethoven may have been inspired by Mozart's great piano quartet in G minor, Kirchhoff 478, often described as the first major work in the genre. Whether or not inspired by his beloved Mozart, Beethoven decided to try his hand at composing three such quartets in 1785, and they are reasonably substantial works, especially compared to the much slighter pieces for piano I played in the first episode. Much has been said about the conversational nature of late 18th century chamber music, the idea that all of the participants are contributing equally to the whole and commenting wittily on each other's contributions. In most mature chamber music of the period, including Beethoven's string quartets of Opus 18, that quality is almost always present. These three piano quartets show flashes of realizing that ideal, but on the whole, the piano tends to dominate a bit too much and the strings sometimes contribute too little to be considered equal partners. Still, that is, at least to a degree, to be expected. The piano was Beethoven's primary instrument. As a soloist, he was already starting to become well-known for his improvisational skills as well as a performer of his own work. Besides, it had long been the tradition that when the piano was included in the chamber music mix, it often acted as the first among equals. So, perhaps the young Beethoven can be forgiven an overzealous use of the piano and an underuse of the strings from time to time in his early works. All three of the quartets show authentic points of interest, but we'll take our closest look at the first, the quartet in E-flat major, W0036, number 1. Mozart's Piano Quartet No. 1 in G minor may have inspired Beethoven to take up the genre, but his first essay in the style is, as Louis Lockwood has pointed out, firmly modeled on a different work by Mozart, his Sonata No. 35 for Piano and Violin in G major, Kershaw 379. The form for Beethoven's Piano Quartet is a bit unusual. It's sometimes described as having only two movements, the first with an unusually long and complex slow introduction, which leads directly, without pause, to an allegro section in a different meter and key. But this long introduction could easily be considered a separate and self-contained movement, even though opening slow movements, as opposed to opening slow introductions, were scarce by the late 18th century. But if the situation is a little ambiguous, it is equally ambiguous in exactly the same way in Beethoven's model for the piece, the Mozart Violin Sonata. The following movement, second or third, depending on how you look at it, is a theme in variations, also the exact same form used by Mozart in his Sonata No. 35, but we'll look at movement one first. The first movement begins in E-flat major, 2-4 meter, and is marked Adagio Assai. It begins with a simple but elegant melody in the piano, which starts by circling around the third of the chord, G, a note that becomes a gentle dissonance on the downbeat of measure two as the chord changes beneath it. This is followed immediately by an ascending leap and a little later, a quick move to tonicize C minor, making it for a brief instant sound like the tonic chord rather than E flat. Right from the beginning, Beethoven is manipulating dynamic levels in an attempt to generate a little drama. 
fortes, alternate with pianos, sometimes with forte pianos inserted between them, all of this taking place in just the first four measures. After the brief hint of C minor, the tonality is shifted abruptly and a little clumsily, back to E-flat, and the first phrase is repeated in a highly ornamented variant, solidly back on tonic. To this point, all of the interesting melodic activity is in the piano, although the strings do contribute a warm, full-sounding backdrop due to the double stops, two strings bowed at the same time, in both violin and viola parts. As indicated earlier, it isn't unusual for the piano to dominate in chamber music combining strings and piano, and it certainly does here. In the next several measures, the piano offers a series of embellished 30-second note flourishes, with a few mildly surprising chromatic chords spicing up the mostly conventional harmonies and eventually ending up in the key of the dominant B-flat major. We'll hear it from the beginning to that spot. At the end of my excerpt, you could hear a little of the violin as it launches into its main melodic idea, a contrasting and at times sweetly lyrical theme, echoed sometimes by the viola, which also sometimes joins with it in harmonious thirds and sixths, and accompanied by cello and piano, perhaps a bit too robustly in places, as we continue to alternate between piano and forte. At this point, Beethoven's attempts to provoke a dramatic sense of urgency may seem a little out of place, given the flowing, lyrical nature of the violin's theme. Eventually, the violin and viola yield the main melodic interest back to the piano, which features a florid, highly ornamented closing theme that eventually takes us to a definitive cadence on B-flat, a double bar, and a repeat sign. After the double bar, a new section is introduced, still in B-flat major, but tonally rather unstable touching on a series of different tonal areas quickly. The main melodic idea is new, consisting of a long, sustained tone, followed by a quicker, swirling descent, presented first by the violin, but then echoed by the viola. Although this melody is itself new, some of the thematic ideas encountered as we continue on do resemble, to some extent, ideas we heard in the earlier section. The piano remains quite rhythmically active throughout much of the section, 
eventually introducing a new syncopated pattern which plays off the more sustained string parts and eventually ends up echoing the first violin itself. Finally, the section trails off to a pianissimo cadence on B-flat with a fermata, and the introduction comes to an end. Here is the opening of the second section, where the violin and viola begin to share the main thematic interest, and a small portion of the piano's florid closing theme which follows it. This first movement, or introduction if you prefer, passes directly without pause to the next movement, in 3-4 time, marked allegro con spirito, and in the key of E-flat minor. It is in the typical sonata allegro form, and so at this point I want to take a minute to explain, in very simple terms, what that means. The first section in a typical sonata allegro movement is called the exposition. It begins with the first subject or theme in the tonic key. Then there is a modulatory transition, which may introduce new thematic elements, and which breaks away from the tonic key to set up a modulation to a new key. If you begin in a major key, the new key to which you're going will be the key of the dominant, that is, the tonal center based on a note five steps higher in the scale. If you're starting in a minor key, the new key will be in what is called the relative major, meaning the major key that has the same key signature as your original minor key has. In this case, we're starting in E-flat minor, and we're going to modulate to G-flat major, three half steps higher, which has the same key signature. Typically, when you arrive at the new key, a new contrasting subject or theme is presented. It's often more lyrical or features more sustained notes than the first. Then, probably after a transitional passage, you're likely to encounter a closing section. Sometimes this closing section sounds like a real theme. Sometimes it doesn't. It may just sound like neutral scale work or a bunch of arpeggios and scale patterns running around without any clear thematic identity. Then, after the closing section, we often find a codetta, a short tale, if you like, that presents another new, often briefer melodic idea, sometimes resembling one of the earlier themes. 
and this leads you to a convincing cadence on the dominant, which closes off the exposition. That's as far as we're going to go for now. But let me say immediately that all movements that seem to be in sonata form do not necessarily behave exactly as I've described. As I said in the first episode in describing the rondo form, actual music doesn't always follow the textbook models. For example, in Haydn's music, the so-called second subject sometimes sounds suspiciously like the first subject, or a slight variant of it, simply transposed to the new key. And in fact, some theorists are fond of making the point that the classical sonata form is not all about introducing contrasting themes in the exposition. It's about introducing contrasting key or tonal centers. But we'll leave that argument for another day and get back to Beethoven's piece. Okay, here is the first theme of the exposition heard in the piano, just as in the previous movement. It starts with a rapidly ascending E-flat minor triad, something like the type of theme often referred to as a Mannheim skyrocket, which then falls back gently a couple of notes. Here is a simplified example. Not remarkable, I suppose, but a distinctive opening gesture, especially when heard against the throbbing eighth-note repetitions of the E-flat minor chord in the piano left hand. By the way, Beethoven used a similar theme in the first movement of his well-known piano sonata in F minor, Opus 2, Number 1, which we'll look at at a later episode. So, after the opening motive, the skyrocketing of a triad, followed by a gentle stepwise descent, you might well expect something like it to continue. But instead, in the third measure, Beethoven lands on a D, the leading tone, dissonant with a chord beneath it, which continues to throb away in repeated eighth notes. He holds this D for more than a measure before making his way up to an F and then bringing back the idea from the second measure, the gentle stepwise descent motive, this time moved up a step to sync up with the underlying harmony. These ideas, which take up the first four bars, then yield to an energetic passage still in the piano based on repeated sixteenth notes featuring several rapid octave jumps. Once again, the strings are initially relegated to a secondary role. The cello duplicates the throbbing eighth notes of the piano left hand, while the violin and viola play repeated syncopated patterns against them, although the violin does briefly echo the pianist's opening motive in bars three and four. Here's an excerpt, starting with the last few bars of the slow introduction and including the first subject and a little bit into the modulatory transition that follows it. The modulatory transition begins with a staccato eighth note scale-wise passage, a little of which you heard at the end of my excerpt. 
and a dynamic new four-note motive in the cello and piano left hand, which looks ahead to the second subject. Here's a bit of the modulatory transition featuring that dynamic new repeated motive. You probably noticed that after picking up a lot of momentum with that repetition of the four-note motive in the piano left hand and cello, the modulatory transition actually ends rather softly, with the right hand of the piano playing alone as it descends in a chromatically inflected line. One more point about the transition I just played. It moves not to the relative major key of G-flat, which would be the conventional maneuver in a sonata form movement based on a minor key, but rather to the minor dominant, B-flat minor. So we're already breaking one of the rules I referenced earlier, although there is some precedent for this in some of the works of Haydn and others. When the second theme finally arrives, its initial phrase is four bars long. It's linked to both that four-note transition motive, especially in its rhythmic profile, and to a lesser extent, the first subject or theme in its triadic outline. Nevertheless, it still retains a unique quality of its own. The piano starts it off again, against more throbbing eighth notes, this time from the viola, and then, after four bars, the violin takes up the melody against a sustained trill in the piano, and subsequently, so does the piano left hand in its lower range, and the cello and viola. Here is the second theme. At the end of my excerpt, after the second theme has played out, you heard the beginning of a new section, marked by sustained string chords with strong forte piano accents and a piano part based mostly on triadic arpeggios. It certainly seems to be modulating again, with the chromatic motion in the bass seemingly pulling us from one tonal center to another. But in the end, it isn't really going anywhere. It'll end up in B-flat minor just as it began. But that's not unusual for transitional passages. Even the modulatory transition from the first subject to the second didn't directly move from E-flat minor to B-flat minor. There were other brief stops along the way, and that's the case again here. We stop briefly at other keys, even though we end up right back where we started. It's difficult at first to decide whether or not we're actually listening to a closing section, but the situation does become clearer just a few bars later, when we're introduced to a significant and quite impressive new lyrical theme, almost gypsy-flavored, beginning with an ascending arpeggio and shared by violin and viola in thirds. It's a distinctive enough idea that I'm going to describe it as the beginning of the codetta. Here it is, starting near the end of the closing section. It's a colorful theme, and it's introduced by a reasonably emphatic cadence, but it doesn't last for very long. 
And before you know it, we've moved on to another new idea, a new rhythmically assertive stepwise phrase beginning with a dotted eighth sixteenth upbeat figure, which you heard a little of at the end of my example. This and a few other new ideas we encounter along the way eventually take us to a firm cadence on the dominant, and the exposition comes to an end with a double bar and repeat sign, which most performers treat as optional. We then enter the development section. It generally begins in the same key in which the exposition ended, but it modulates around quite a bit, sometimes to surprisingly distant keys. After hearing the second subject, closing section, and codetta all in the same key, it's typical that the composer would want to inject some tonal variety and perhaps develop a little tension by stopping off at several different tonal areas. Although modern audiences may not experience this key tension in quite the same way that late 18th and early 19th century listeners did. But the frequent modulations are just one component of the development section. As the name suggests, development sections develop the previous themes, or sometimes just parts of themes, smaller portions or motives broken off from the larger melodic entities. These themes or motives may be taken through different keys, they may combine and recombine with other themes or motives, and they may be tossed back and forth between different combinations of instruments. And, by the way, the composer may at times choose to develop unlikely thematic ideas, ones which we may barely have noticed when we listen to the exposition, while largely ignoring the ones we expect to hear develop, the first subject, the second subject, the codetta theme, etc. So what does Beethoven do in this development section? It's not a long one. It begins by developing a free inversion of the first theme in the violin in the form of descending triadic arpeggios, but it soon forsakes standard motivic manipulation to luxuriate in the rich sonorities of some slow-moving chromatic chords, first hinted at in the modulatory transition, of which Beethoven seems quite proud. Perhaps the most exotic of these is a chord commonly called a Neapolitan sixth, a major chord in first inversion, that is, the third of the chord in the bass, built on the flat second scale degree of the key. Here is the development section, making its way gently back to the opening theme for the recapitulation. Because the development section is only 25 measures long, the recapitulation is upon us quickly, probably before we expect it, as signaled by the return of the first theme in the original key of E-flat minor. From there, things proceed predictably. The two main themes return in the tonic minor key as expected, and of course, the modulatory transition between them doesn't really modulate this time, despite the fact that it makes a couple of feints toward doing so. 
The original Codera, now transformed into a somewhat lengthier coda, takes a quick look backward at the first theme while displaying some clever harmonic ploys of its own. The whole movement ends on a surprisingly soft note with a simple, almost delicate cadence. Beethoven's intention in the slow movement in E-flat major and 2-4, marked cantabile, was by no means to be revolutionary, not even to challenge tradition in any serious way. His goal was simply to provide a pleasant tune and a series of attractive and idiomatic variations. The variation tradition of the late 18th century was, with some notable exceptions, a conservative one. Variation composers had no obligation to transform the original theme or reveal greater depth or profundity within it, as I noted in my previous episode. This was done occasionally by composers on the level of Haydn and Mozart, but even those masters were at times perfectly content to take a pleasant melody, whether a popular tune of the day or one of their own composing, and spin out a set of attractive variations that were merely decorative in nature. Beethoven's melody is a noble if modest little tune, featuring the piano with little more than harmonic support from the strings. It unfolds in two repeated eight-measure sections, the first closing on the dominant and the second eventually returning to tonic. The melody features some distinctive dotted note rhythms as it circulates around the third of the chord, G once again, in a manner somewhat reminiscent of the first theme in the first movement. It then proceeds in a graceful if conventional manner with a little lift provided in the sixth measure where the leap of a minor seventh coincides with a chromatic chord, a secondary dominant seventh chord that embellishes the dominant chord that follows it. This sort of thing is by no means unusual in itself, but the coordination between the melodic leap and the chromatic chord that accompanies it is one of the best features of the tune and is nicely exploited in some of the variations to come. After the double bar and repeat sign, the second eight bars provide a touch of contrast, but familiar motives are reused, and the last four bars are a close variant of the last four in the first section, modified for the return of the tonic chord at the end. Here is the theme itself. The second variation is one of the most effective, where the violin takes the lead with a decorative pattern of lyrical 16th note triplets not particularly tied to the theme. These are interrupted in the third bar with light offbeat staccato notes, after which viola and cello jump in to double the violin's next phrase. The second half is even more impressive. Whereas viola and cello are generally relegated to providing rather passive harmonic support along with the piano, the viola does step out of character briefly in the second section to echo the violin's elegant phrase. In the last phrase, the violin begins to reproduce its first phrase in the first section, but then introduces a lovely variant as it leaps unexpectedly up a tenth before closing the phrase and the variation with a return to its undulating triplets. Here's an excerpt with the first section repeated, but the second section heard only once. Thank you. 
In Variation 3, marked Adagio, the viola takes over, with a lyrical flow of 30-second notes, reinforced in places by violin, and peaking nicely in measure 6, along with the one chromatic chord in the theme. Back in the original tempo, the cello takes the lead in the fourth variation, but the fifth variation represents the climax of the piece, at least in terms of sonority, as the piano introduces a series of leaping dotted note figures that stride briskly and authoritatively through E-flat minor. The strings continue their accompanying function for the most part, although they are a little more active melodically in places with their somewhat simplified version of the melody occasionally doubling the piano. Speaking of the piano, its left hand is kept busy with near-constant arpeggio figures in 30-second notes, at times quite low in the range, and lending a somewhat muddy, even turgid quality to the overall sonority. Here is a short excerpt. The drama may seem a little forced in places in Variation 5, but the general effect is still quite powerful. Variation 6 is predictably a bit more low-key, but the string sonorities are at their most resonant, and the entire variation makes an appropriate preparation for the final statement of the theme, no longer marked cantabile, but a perky little allegretto. At first glance it may seem that the tune has outworn its welcome but the rousing little coda that follows, featuring the piano, of course, brings the movement to a satisfying, if surprisingly quiet, conclusion. Here is the final variation.
It would be difficult to contend that this early piano quartet is an undiscovered masterpiece or anything of that sort. On the other hand, all three movements have their charms. The opening slow movement has a strong sense of atmosphere, and the allegro movement shows a level of harmonic imagination unusual for such a young composer. So, although the overall form of the piece seems a little out of proportion, notwithstanding the fact that it's based on a Mozartian model, the work is still worth exploring. The second in Beethoven's set of early piano quartets is again based on a Mozartian model, this one a violin sonata in E-flat major, Kerschel 380. This quartet follows a somewhat more conventional formal approach with three movements. The first is in the standard sonata allegro form, the second a more lyrical andante in binary or two-part form, and the third a brisk rondo. The first movement is in D major, common time and marked allegro moderato. It begins with a forceful, if unremarkable, subject that asserts the tonic triad in octaves in the piano, evoking a military mood reinforced by the dotted eighth, sixteenth note rhythms it employs. The opening chord progression of one tonic D major, submediate B minor, the chord built on the sixth scale degree, subdominant G major, the chord built on the fourth scale degree, and supertonic E minor, the chord built on the second scale degree, each chord a third lower than the one before it. It's a common enough progression, but nevertheless makes an emphatic opening statement. After a quieter two-bar link, still exploiting those same dotted rhythms, the strings present the same theme, one dynamic level lower, but still assertively. A conventional but attractive modulatory passage follows, shared by piano with the strings, of which you heard just a little bit at the end of my first example. Here the key transitions to the expected key of the dominant, A major, showing as it proceeds some strong dynamic contrasts between phrases. Then the second theme is presented, quietly, first by the piano, with the upper strings filling in the harmonies. This theme is also characterized by strong rhythms, including some light syncopations, but since it is delivered softly, it sounds quite a bit gentler than the first theme, at least initially. The first four-measure phrase is then repeated more vigorously with the violin taking the lead, but in A minor, and with the syncopations now seeming quite a bit more assertive. Another transitional passage occurs, dominated by the piano, you heard a very small bit of it, and the third distinctive theme, a lyrical, triplet-laden melody, is introduced in the violin and later handed to the viola. 
We're going to call this the closing section, although there is room for disagreement here. But it is introduced by an emphatic cadence and a significant change in texture. There's another distinctive new idea introduced as we head toward the end of the exposition. It's a candidate for a codetta, and although it's cute and memorable, there's not a lot to it, although it brings us quietly and effectively to the final cadence. The development section is perhaps a little disappointing. It's dominated by syncopated rhythms similar to some encountered in the exposition, but which never played a major role there. The first violin leads the way in terms of melodic gestures, providing fairly generic, mostly triadic-based motives, occasionally handed over to the viola, and often sandwiched between or accompanied by those same short, long, 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 short syncopations which are heard virtually throughout. Beethoven uses typical abrupt fluctuations of loud and soft in an effort to add a little bit of intensity, but these sharp contrasts don't really seem inherent in the material, and they come across a bit forced from time to time. Understandably, it takes the youthful composer a little more time to learn how to come up with the sort of musical ideas that lend themselves to sharp dynamic contrasts of the sort he uses, perhaps overuses, here. At this point, the spirit is willing, but the thematic ideas do not quite keep pace. Here is a short excerpt from the fairly short development section. When, after the brief obligatory dash through a number of different tonal areas has run its course, Beethoven begins the recapitulation, with a repeat of the first theme back in the home tonic of D major, opening as before with a statement by the piano followed by one from the strings. After a short transition, which does not really modulate this time, but sometimes fakes doing so, the second theme returns, not in its original key of A, the dominant, but in the home tonic of D major, which is standard operating procedure. The third, or closing theme, then also comes back in the key of D, and, as it is spun out in a section that corresponds loosely to the original codetta, we encounter some of the most interesting chromatic progressions of the movement. Of course, it's all for show, because before long we're solidly back in D major. Following this somewhat adventurous recapitulation of the original codetta section, we launch into the real coda that drives to the final cadence with syncopated rhythms in the strings and flashing 16th note scales in the piano. But once again, the movement ends rather quietly with an unexpected plagal cadence, subdominant to tonic. The slow movement in F-sharp minor, 3-4 meter in Mark Andante con moto is a mild disappointment. The initial melody, doubled by piano and violin with accompanying chords, 
is centered closely around the outlines of the tonic and dominant chords, and only its offbeat quality lends it real interest. This unadorned version of the theme, only three bars long, soon gives way to a more embellished version in the piano. The transition that follows, of which you heard just a little bit, alternates scale-wise string passages with descending arpeggios from the piano at first, but the piano eventually asserts its dominance and takes us to the second theme. The second theme starts not on the relative major itself, A major, but on its dominant chord, although it's quite clear where we're headed almost from the beginning. It's a decidedly new idea, presented in the violin, although the viola responds with a similar motive after a couple of measures. Its rhythmic identity is quite distinctive, employing dotted 16th and 32nd notes, outlining the dominant 7th chord initially in connection with ties into strong beats. As you heard, the most distinctive elements of the theme soon peter out, to be replaced by more generic-sounding, flowing passages of sixteenth notes, sometimes repeated sequentially, shared by piano and violin, with the viola often harmonizing in thirds. A varied and embellished version of the theme, featuring primarily the piano, occasionally answered by violin and viola passages, eventually takes us to A major, where the penis continues its dominance with various figuration patterns until we arrive at the dominant of A major, an E major chord. An interesting transitional passage comes next, one which soon introduces not only dotted and syncopated rhythms, but even quotes the opening bar of the first theme at one point. But it's really just a digression, and although it seems to be headed toward B minor at one point, in the end it returns us safely to A major. There, the last theme of interest is presented, and it consists of a series of narrow little phrases presented by violin and harmonized by viola, both in pizzicato, sometimes moving up a third and back down again, and sometimes covering the same territory with a more sinuously chromatic line, with which the piano right hand eventually joins as the strings switch back to arco.
Although this movement is not really in sonata form, it does have some sonata form aspects. As the second half of the movement began, still in A major, it seems clear that the young composer believes that there is still more to be squeezed out of the stepwise motive that ended the first half. And it's possible that later Beethoven could in fact have worked some magic in this regard. But there's little trace of magic here, and the development of the already overworked idea, heard mostly in piano and violin, again harmonized by the viola, seems just a bit tedious. A listener might find it a welcome relief when the music starts to modulate to C-sharp minor, in which key we eventually hear a variant of Beethoven's first theme reintroduced. But Beethoven grows weary of his tune, and it soon becomes clear that it's just a vehicle to take us to the next tonal area. The second theme then returns, this time in F-sharp minor, and in its minor key transformation, it's more impressive than before. But it soon dies away, and Beethoven floats another idea in F-sharp minor, related to the second theme, but even more rhythmically vigorous. But even this new idea doesn't hold the composer's interest for very long, and soon he resorts once again to the sinuous yet ultimately dry idea with which he closed the first half of the movement. Once again, the use of pizzicato in the strings adds some temporary color, but the conclusion of the movement is fairly weak, perhaps to set up a strong contrast with the sparkling rondo movement that is to follow. The third movement rondo is in D major, 6-8 meter, and marked allegro. The initial refrain is not of striking originality, but it's effective in the context of a fast-paced movement like this one. It begins quietly with a robust two-bar phrase that arpeggiates first the tonic and then the dominant chord before returning to tonic. This is followed by a more sensuous stepwise passage doubled in thirds that ends on the dominant and provides a nice contrast with the first phrase. The entire four bars are repeated, this time ending on tonic. Then the entire eight-bar section is repeated, this time with the strings joining in and the volume pushed up to forte. The first violin then takes up the theme with the piano switching over to an even more active accompaniment of pulsating 16th note arpeggios. This rondo refrain also includes a brief middle section or B section. We plunge into B minor for a passage, consisting mostly of rapid scale lines, without a strong sense of melodic identity. After eight bars, and having returned to A major, we hear a one-measure link, and the first part of the refrain theme is repeated again.
So the refrain theme, 16 measures in total, may be conventional in its form and presentation, but it displays a lot of energy and gets the movement off to a flying start. It's followed by a transitional passage, you just heard a few measures of it, which moves first to B minor and then finally to A major, where the first official episode begins. This theme, a very simple one, enfolds in the piano quietly in a series of three-note ascending motives, each of which is answered by a different three-note motive in violin and viola. After six measures and a single measure forte intrusion by piano and strings together, the theme returns, now up a fourth in D major, taken by the violin with the viola and piano providing the three-note responses. After a few more measures, we find ourselves back in A major. Here's an excerpt from the first episode with a couple of measures of lead-in from the transition. At the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of the retransition, introduced by a new motive first heard in the piano. As the piano moves on to rapid reiterations of the accompanying chords, the viola and even the cello get a rare chance to speak out as they continue to develop the same motive. That motive soon fades, leaving the piano and strings to alternate between rapid arpeggio patterns reminiscent of the first transition. The piano eventually takes full control, with the strings relegated to offbeat motives, again similar to those heard in the first transition. The coming return of the refrain is actually previewed, first by violin and then piano, over a held chord from the strings, as they quote its opening measures. After that fermata, the piano alone comes back in, with a quiet linking phrase to launch us back again into the refrain. We'll hear an excerpt starting from later in this longish retransition through to the return of the refrain theme. The next episode, which plunges into B minor, has a strong driving personality based on powerful repeated rhythms.
This episode takes us through several different key areas, frequently through sequential repetitions, moving eventually to G major, where its thematic material takes on a lighter tone. But in the end, it sends us to a fermata on a dominant seventh chord on A, which of course primes us for a return to D major and the refrain. And after another chromatic lead-in from the piano, the refrain theme duly reports in well, most of the refrain theme. Here it is with the lead-in again. As you heard, we don't really get the whole thing, but after a quick little transition section, which seems to want to modulate but never really does, we do hear the first episode, this time in the original tonic of D major. It goes on its merry way until we get a fermata pause on a dominant seventh chord, followed by a second for piano alone. And then, finally, the refrain theme returns, soon joined after four bars by vigorous triadic passage work from violin and viola, which then spins off to a series of fast-moving scales and arpeggios as Beethoven brings the piece to a close. Here is the last section from the return of the final refrain. This particular rondo is a bit more elaborate than the one we looked at in the first episode. A bit easier to follow, with its A, B, A, C, A, B prime, A form, and probably quite a bit more successful. That's all for this episode. For the next, we're going to take a look at two early cantatas by Beethoven. A cantata on the death of Emperor Joseph II, and a cantata on the accession of Emperor Leopold II. It's quite possible that neither was actually performed in Beethoven's lifetime, but they are interesting works nevertheless and worthy of attention. <laughs>